This was an exciting week in our house because there was a trailer that was released for the Star Wars Rogue One movie, and my boys were really excited about that, and their dad might have been as well, a little. But uh, you'll notice that over the last five to ten years in Hollywood, there's been this unprecedented, unprecedented amount of origin stories, prequels, films that want to go back and say, how did we get there? You know, how did we arrive here? And some films start out that way. One of my favorites would be um, in the, in the uh, Jason Bourne series, that first film, that first scene, it opens up, if you've never seen the film, where his, you know, he's kind of floating in the ocean and you, you can see this, this uh, beacon kind of you know, flashing on, on, his, on his person. And for the, for the next half hour into the story, you're just wondering, how did we get here? What's going on and how did we get here? And then they begin to unpack how you got there. I mean, we, just, we love these origin stories if they're told well. This morning, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 1, the first 14 verses. For the next number of weeks, we're going to go through the entire letter of Ephesians, and we're going to explode the beauty of not only the gospel of Christ, but also the life we live in freedom and to his glory because of the gospel of Christ. And Ephesians 1, these first 14 verses, it's like our salvation origin story. It's like Paul goes back and he goes, how did we get here? How did you get here to sit here in, in Redeemer this morning, saved by grace, thankful for Jesus? How did you get here? You all have stories you could tell. Well, I was at this place, or I prayed this prayer, I was at this particular meeting, or this person talked to me, or I remember I, I prayed with someone, or I raised my hand, and I went to the front, and I prayed with a pastor. You all have these stories, but that's not actually where your story began. Paul tells us where the story began. Your true redemption origin story. It's amazing. Some of you are here this morning, and you've not placed your faith in Christ alone. You don't, you're, you're searching, you're seeking, you have questions, you're wondering. How did you get here this morning to wonder and to ask and to, and, uh, to inquire about Christian faith and the truth, truth claims of the Bible? How did you get here? Well, you have a story about how you got here, and you, you, you may say, well, I was talking to a person, or I came, I'm curious, I came with a family, I came with a friend. But here's my encouragement to those of you who are here who might be in that scenario of searching and seeking is that God's love and his grace is so profound, it's so amazing, it's so deep, it's so beautiful. It's actually, uh, it's actually been moving and under, undergirding and drawing you, uh, even to be here today, uh, to hear this gospel. So here we come to Ephesians chapter 1, the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints of those who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him until things in heaven and things on the earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Now that's redemption's origin story, and we are going to blow this out in all of its beauty this morning by asking this text three questions. And the three questions we're going to ask are, what does this scripture say about the nature of the gospel? Why is the nature of the gospel important? And what difference does the nature of the gospel make today? So here's the whole sermon in a sentence. The Father initiated your redemption by grace. The Son accomplished your adoption by grace. The Spirit guarantees your inheritance by grace. So what is the nature of this grace? What is the nature of this gospel? First we take a look at it. We see that Ephesians showcases the relationship between what Christ did for you and the life that you live in response to what Christ did for you. That's the flow of this entire letter. You can take the book of the letter of Ephesians, you can break it in half, uh, and 50% of the book is all about divine action. It has nothing to do with you. And the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, are human response. It has everything to do with how you live in response to divine action. And what we just read here in these first 14 verses is the beauty of when we use this phrase, we're saved by grace alone, that word alone has pretty vast implications. And if you get on that grace alone horse and you ride that out of the theological barn, guess where it takes you? To this place where God is moving toward you to save you, to redeem you, apart from you, without anything from you, because of his great love for you. And this is what separates the gospel out from every other religious worldview on the planet. Because every other religious system works like this. You've got a strong God, and in order to get the strong God, you have to be strong and continue to be strong so that you get the strong God. That's every religion. They all have a system and a way of saving yourself by appeasing this deity. But in the gospel, when we go to our origin story, we find that actually in the beginning of this movement of redemption, it has nothing to do with us. Instead of a strong God coming and saying, be strong and then you can get the strong God, we have a strong God that's come and become weak in Christ to save weak people who can't save themselves. And so this is the flow of Ephesians. Chapters 1, two, three, chapters one to 3, divine action. Chapters 4 to 6, human response. And now there's two ways that we can misunderstand this letter, and there's two ways we can misunderstand the gospel. We can misunderstand it, and many people have throughout church history, and said, oh, well, if chapters 1 through 3 are divine action, and God saved me apart from me, and God's grace came toward me minus my merit, then that must mean that, if, that grace means that obedience is not relevant. I'm, I'm, I'm saved by grace, so obedience doesn't matter. And that's a, that's a lawless ditch. That's not even the gospel that Paul taught. And that's not even what grace produces. If you, if you preach the grace of God unapologetically like Paul did, it produces loyalty, not license. So that's one ditch to say, you know, if you're, uh, you're saved by grace, so obedience doesn't matter. That's a ditch. But the other ditch, which we've also fallen into, I've fallen into this ditch many times throughout my life. You probably have too. The other ditch is, if my obedience isn't good enough, I forfeited my divine inheritance. It's off the table. God's basically said, oh, yeah, 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 I've totally saved you by grace in Christ alone, but I'm holding your adoption papers over a divine shredder. 
And if you don't get it right, live right, you know, fire on all cylinders and just be on this continual uh, growth, growth plan of obedience, I'm shredding these. Oh yeah, you're saved by grace alone, but you know, right? That's, those are the two ditches. Those are the two theological ditches throughout church history, right? And so Paul unapologetically reveals something here in, uh, in Ephesians, and he doesn't, he doesn't pull any punches about it at all. He begins with this huge announcement that confirms that what God did for you, he did without you. We don't like that very much because we have an inner freedom fighter that goes, hold on a minute. What do you mean God did something for me, without me? We just read it. If you're confused, you can read it again. You can go home, you can have lunch. You can say, I'm not sure I agree with that sermon. Because just like me, your inner freedom fighter goes, hold on a minute. What do you mean God did something for me, without me? Yeah, he did. We just read it. And there's a lot of verbal bombs that Paul just launched. But those verbal bombs are good news. I mean, that's what makes the grace so sweet. If what God did for you, he didn't do without you, and he actually needed you to do it, that's, that's bad news. That's the anti-gospel. That's the, you're actually holding this whole thing together. And if you've read God's law and you own a mirror, you have a problem. So the beauty of grace alone is that not only did God do something beautiful for you, because the Father planned your redemption, but the Son has accomplished your adoption, and the Spirit guarantees your inheritance. That actually does something in us. Dr. Brian Chappell, who is uh, one of the profs at Knox Theological Seminary, taught my hermeneutics class. Some of you have the ESV Gospel Transformation Bible. He's the senior editor of that. He says it like this. When the grace of God explodes in your heart, this is what the grace of God does. You stop doing the math of the mind on obedience because there's a chemistry of the heart that blows away the math of the mind. See, the math of the mind says, well, how much can I obey? And well, God forgive, and what about We just stay in this whole place of like, well, are you really saying that if I obey? And it's all math. Well, what can I get away with? And still get to, it's, all, it's all math. And what the beauty of God's grace actually does is it blows away the math of the mind because now there's chemistry in the heart. And the grace that saved you is the same grace that's reforming you, that's doing this beautiful, gracious, and saving work in you. This is the beauty of it. So that's why Paul just blows it out and he says flat out, Ephesians 1, God moved first. He moved first. Toward you, apart from you, he moved first. He saved you single-handedly. He saved you definitively. Right? Not temporarily. Not, well, okay, I got you started, but now I've got my eye on you. That's Galatia. And Paul says no. And in Ephesians, he lays it right out. He sets the stage for our response. And so what does this do? What this does, because where Ephesians goes, if you said, what's, this, what's the um, theme of Ephesians? Many scholars are going to just tell you. They're going to say, well, the theme of Ephesians is spiritual growth. It's Christian growth. It's growing in the Lord. Right? It is. Chapter 4, verse 1 starts out, walk worthy of the calling of which you were called. Chapter 5, verse 1 starts out with, be imitators of Christ. And chapter 6 is all about putting on the armor of God. We're going to get there in the coming weeks. We're going to blow this all out. It's beautiful and awesome. But none of that is any relevant unless you get what Paul said at the beginning, which is, you're not going to roll your sleeves up harder and pull that stuff off. Don't even bother preaching Ephesians starting in chapter 4 and moving on. Because every single person in the church is just going to run out and go, all right, let's do this. Let's do this thing. And you're just not that great. And we need the glory and the grace of Christ. We have to marvel at it. See, spiritual growth is counterintuitive because before you get to behaving, you've got to be in beholding. This is Paul's point. It's the point of Ephesians. It's the point of all 13 epistles. All 13 epistles blow out. Beholding, behold, 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 behold. And guess what happens? What flows out of that? Behaving. 
It's not, hey, behave, 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 behave. And you know why you're behaving? Also, behold a little bit. No. It's not how it works. It's not how he, he blows out this. And so the beauty of this is our obedience to Christ is a dance of celebration. It's not a dance audition. But if you go through church history, and if I was to criticize our own tradition as, as a, the Reformed tradition, see, our problem as you go through, through history is somewhere along the line, because you've got these human sinners involved in the pulpits, like me, saved by grace, thank God, we somewhere along the line have made the obedience, the dance of obedience, into a dance audition. And so now instead of the church obeying from freedom and the glory of Christ, dancing to the glory of the one who saved them, it's now like, okay, well, how was that performance? Was it good enough? I'm not really sure. And instead of a culture of gracious compassion, as I say often here, we end up with a culture of comparison. Everybody's comparing how everybody else's dance moves are. And we've lost the dance of obedience to the glory of his grace because now it's a dance competition. Now when you come to church, instead of like, let's dance to the glory of Christ, it's not, so you think you can dance, 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 dance. And so everybody's just comparing. How's your sanctification doing? How am I doing? How are you growing, Lord? Hey, how? So it's like the number one question no Christian wants to answer. How is your walk with the Lord? It's, I'm just, I'm just with Jesus. Okay? I mean, I'm becoming less, the, 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 beauty, the beauty of what the Spirit does is that he's distilling us, and so he's making all of us love our Savior and hate our sin, so we're less sinful. But we're all going to die real sinners, needing a real Savior, united to the one who is sinless. And as long as we remember that our righteousness is not infused into us like the Catholic doctrine, and it's been imputed to us, in other words, you've been hand, it's been handed to you, now I'm not in a place of comparing myself with my neighbor. Because I'm not any better than he is. I'm just forgiven. And so this is the beauty of this grace alone that Paul blows out in, in Ephesians chapter 1. So he just announces this huge thing. And, and historically, if, if it's not taught, if the scriptures are not taught well, and I'm guilty of not teaching them well or even um, interpreting them well for myself, you get into this whole thing about performance. And here's what Paul re- reveals in chapter 1. Look at it. You look at chapter 1, how many requirements are there? Zero. How many assignments are there? Zero. How many lessons and conditions are there in, in, in redemptive history before you got saved? Zero. Your redemption was entirely put together and put in action by God and sealed by God. Not only is that beautiful news for you, but all of us who are parents, that's beautiful news for our children. Because we serve a covenant God who will not only save us, but our children. I've talked to many people over the, even over the last year. I remember I was speaking in another province. And this guy came up to me after and he wanted to have a big predestination battle. And I said, listen, um, if you, there's a lots of room to kind of decide how this works. But here's the bottom line. Paul doesn't even explain it in chapter 2. He doesn't even lay this out like, and now I'm going to explain what that means. He just goes, celebrate this. This is something to celebrate. But our inner freedom fighters don't want to celebrate it. We want to turn a promise into a threat. Do you see that? That's what sinners do. What God is trying to do is go, you have assurance. You're saved. Full stop. 
And we want to go, well, wait a minute, hold on a minute, what, what the implications of that? I mean, hey, listen, look, we're not robots. Predestination is not fatalism. We, we, we have free will, we choose the blue car or the red one, we make choices every day, and we're responsible for the choices, and we live in the consequences of all the choices we make. All things earthly, we have free will. But what Paul says, without apology, all things heavenly, you don't have free will. You need grace to save you. And if you want to fight that, then guess who's the savior? You. Because you prayed, you raised your hand, you walked to the front, you did this thing, you cooperated. No, you didn't. It's not team justification. It's all Jesus. And the reason that's good news is because if you stray, who gets you back? If your kids stray, and I've talked with many of you, through tears, for your children, who today, they're not saying, they're not loving Jesus today. But you want to know what? Who, who is bringing them back? If you believe that salvation is by grace alone, you rest as parents and you say, oh God, I'm thankful your grace transcends my failures as a parent or their poor choices or a combination of the both or the crazy world we live in or whatever because you my kids have been baptized into christ the holy spirit was present at their baptism the holy spirit has drawn them to faith in christ and as my kid my kids at some point they profess their faith in christ or they will profess their faith in christ and i'm hanging on to salvation by by grace alone that god not only did you save me and that's my promise but that's that's a promise for my kids and you hang on to that, church. That's the beauty and the assurance of the power of his grace. But if you remove that, you've got to cross your fingers and hope your kids make great decisions and blah, blah, blah. You understand? And, God, and, and the beauty of this gospel, Paul blows it out. He says, God saved you single-handedly and definitively. And then, and then he uses this word adoption, which is the whole point, Right? You've been predestined and chosen. He drops all these verbal bombs. It's unbelievable. Bomb after bomb after bomb. You've been chosen. You've been predestined. You've been whatever. And as 2016 North Americans were like, whoa, whoa, this is such an affront to my, you know, free will. Why is that the biggest deal? He saved you from, he saved you from death itself. Why is that a big deal? The beauty of the glory of his grace. And so what, hap- what, what Paul goes on to say is it's for adoption. When you think about adoption, adoption is a legal ceremony that's a one and done. But then it's also a lifetime of that adopted child growing into the values of that adopted family. That's the letter of Ephesians. You've been predestined for adoption. Full stop. Saved by grace alone. And now you're going to spend the rest of your life adopting the values of your, of your adopted father, of your adopted family. You're going to live to the glory of God. And he's going to kind of blow that all out in the latter half of the letter. But where's the power to do that? It's all here in the beauty and the glory of his grace. So that's why he starts out in verse 1 and 2 by saying, calling them saints and faithful, right? You see that in verse 1 and 2. You're saints. How did that happen? Christ alone. Because to be a saint means to be, means to be holy, made holy. You and I aren't holy. You and I aren't righteous. Christ is righteous. We're united to him. So he is our righteousness. So therefore, we're righteous in Christ, and in and of ourselves we're sinners. Both of those things are true. So that's why Paul is able to call them saints. So, how, so think about it. He, he says, you know, I am, I'm in Christ. My life, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, the life I used to live was dead. The life I'm living is in Christ. I am Christ. His identity is in Christ. And then he says, I'm the chief of sinners. Is he confused? Is he a schizophrenic? Why is Paul saying these things? Because they're both true. In Christ, I'm absolutely righteous. And if you take Christ away, guess what's, le- guess what's left? A sinner. Right? It's very simple. Judgment day, we only have one thing to say before the Father. I'm with him. That's what I'm saying. Right? He's my righteousness. He's, there he is. He's my righteousness. And so Paul lays this out. 
and he says saints, but then he also uses another word to describe the Ephesians, and he calls them faithful. He says faithful. And what does that mean? To be full of... It, 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 we, we think of the word faithful to only mean dependable. They're faithful. They're dependable. Hmm? Right? Was the early church dependable? I don't know. Have you read Corinthians lately? Uh, no. But they're faithful. They're full of faith. They're, they are uh, connected to Christ. And so because of this, uh, the beauty of his grace, it's all because of Christ. They're full of faith. It's, both, it's all God's doing. It's beautiful. And then in verse 3, it says that God blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That's past tense. It's done. It's not, hey, God blesses you, but um, that blessing is pending. It's all pending. No. It's not what it means. In fact, in the Greek, I won't bore, bore you with this, but I'll just, to make the point, this is, a, this is called the orus tense in Greek, which means it's done and it's open-ended. So that means you're blessed. It's done. Divinely, you're blessed. And now it's open-ended. So what does that look like? In Christ at the cross, he's blessed you. He's brought you in. He's united you to Christ. And now here you are today, and as a church even, we're praying through these trials and these horrible things earlier today that all of us as, as uh, families that we deal with. And, but what's the blessing today? That blessing today is that peace, that hope, that grace. Jesus says, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives do I give to you. It doesn't make sense that you wouldn't be freaking out, but yet your soul is at rest. The world is at rest. But the world is at unrest, but you are at rest. Grace peace. That's why all of Paul's letters, how do they start? Grace, peace, grace, peace. What is the gospel? Grace and peace. And then he blows out what that grace and peace is in the rest of his letters. Right? This is what he does. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Then look at verse 11. You look at verse 11. It says, you have obtained an inheritance. Obtained, past tense, finished. Obtained an inheritance. Not, your, your inheritance is pending your behavior. That's radical grace. And the fear, historically, was, you can't say that, Paul. Don't stand up in front of a Redeemer and tell them that their inheritance is a done deal. Because then there's going to be no love and good works. If you say, church, it's done, it's finished, you live under a banner that reads it is finished. Your performance does not have anything to do with your inheritance. You're free. If you say that, then nobody's going to you know, want to love their neighbor, nobody's going to give to the poor, nobody's going to you know, help stack chairs, nobody's going to serve, nobody's going to give money. That was the fear, historically. But what is the promise? done. So what is the life that we live now? It's a freedom dance. Because I'm not actually adding anything. I'm not securing anything. I'm not validating anything. I'm free. And so now, what's this beautiful life of freedom that I want to live to the glory of the one who saved me? And what does that look like? And then he blows it out in the rest of his letter. He goes, here's what your freedom will kind of end up looking like. It's going to look like this. It's beautiful and it's absolutely amazing. It's done. It's done. Right? Grace doesn't make Christians lazy. It makes them loyal. That's Paul's premise for grace. So that's the nature of the gospel. Why is that nature important? Well, if you go back to the verbal rockets that he launched, all of these verbal rockets are initiated and detonated by grace. He says, you're blessed, chosen, predestined, redeemed, re had Christ revealed to you, adopted, blessed, your inheritance is assured, you've been united to Christ, just verbal rockets. He just drops them. God's grace coming to you. Initiated by grace, detonated by grace. Why is, that, why is any of that important? Well, it's important because Paul just announces this, this beautiful celebration. It actually changes us. It actually absolutely changes us. Rather than fixating on trying to be God, 
in our life and have everything work out. The rest, I'm in the hands of a God who is working things out. He's wiser than I am. He's smarter than I am. He's more loving than I am. He's more generous than I am. He's more benevolent than I am. There's no version of me interpreting the scripture where I'm like, you know, I think I'm more loving than God in this instance. I would do this particular thing and God didn't do it and therefore I'm somehow wiser than God. No. What, what all of these verbal rockets do that Paul launches, it makes us go, whoa, wow. I can actually have rest in a world that's unrest. I can actually have peace in a world where there's no peace. This is the beauty of what he, of what he does and of uh, what this text reveals nature of the gospel is so important because what Paul is saying, what Paul is arguing is God has free will and he used it to save you. So dance! Right? But as North Americans, we, obs- we, we read chapter 1 and obsess over the argument about free will. Well, do we have free will? Do I have free will? Do I have free will? We totally miss the point. Paul, if Paul were, were alive today, listening to North Americans read this text, he would be going, what are you guys wait? What I was saying was, God has free will, and he saved you. And so now, though, yes, there's mystery here in this text, the point is, you rest in grace, you celebrate his grace, you worship to the glory of his grace, and now we go and we become ministers of his grace. And as we, from this place of sheer rest and joy, share the spiritual rest that we have with our friends and our family, we share the beauty of the gospel. That is the ordinary means of grace that God uses to save others. And you and I don't get to preside over how that looks or who that is or whatever. We, we have nasty habits as North Americans of walking down the street. We read, you read a, 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 the text on predestination, you're like, well, this person's living that way, so I'm not sure, and this and whatever. You try and figure it out. Hey, look, if, there's bre- if they're breathing, there's time. And you and I don't get to preside over that. As pastors, you get asked all the time, hey, pastor, can I ask you a question? My kid is doing this and this and this and this and this. Do you think they're saved? I'm on a need-to-know basis. Here's what I know. If they've been baptized with Christ and they profess Christ, they're saved. Yeah, but they're doing this and this and this and this and this. Well, I guess they're on their way back. Sounds like a painful journey. But that's what the text is telling me. I don't get no. I don't get to decide that. Hey, pastor, can I ask you a question? So-and-so died and this and thing, and I'm not really sure. You know, did they go to heaven or not? I got nothing. I'm on a need-to-know basis, and here's what I need to know. God's grace came toward you, apart from you, and he saved you. And the gospel is good news for you, because it's not riding on you. That's what I know. And the beauty of that is that means that that's true for your children. Because God is a covenant father. And you take that to the bank. The glory of his grace. You rest in the beauty of the implications of his glorious grace. Paul doesn't step back and, and explain any of this. He just announces it. Absolutely so what difference does this make today? So if that's the nature of the gospel, his mercy minus your merit coming toward you and the implications of it, what, what difference does it really make today? Well, Christian maturity, which is what this whole letter is about, which is what over the next number of weeks we're going to blow out, Christian maturity begins never with what we must do, always with what we receive. Totally counterintuitive. If you want to mature as a believer and use all these North American idioms, grow in the Lord, da, 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 all, all good things. It never begins with what you should be doing. It always begins with what you've received. Because that's what gets the chemistry set exploding in your heart. 
to recognize that the thing that you're doing isn't validating or nullifying what Christ did. And when you rest in that, that absolutely transforms the way that you want to live. So Paul's, this letter is about spiritual growth, but Paul spends 50% of it focusing on redemption before application. 50% of his letter has nothing to do with what you with you. It has everything to do with what Christ did. It's a tidal wave of God's grace coming toward you because it's the gospel that saves is the power that transforms. So Paul's like, I have to take you where the power is. That's why Ephesians doesn't start in chapter 4, verse 1. Dear Ephesus, walk worthy of the calling of which you were called. Oh my gosh, how's your walk going? How's yours? I don't know. Doesn't start there. Ephesians doesn't start in chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of Christ. Oh, that's right, we've got to imitate him. Come on, guys. It's all, uh... He spends 50% of his time trying to dial them out of their nearsightedness to go, hey, rest in this. This will reform your heart. This will do... This is the, the beauty of his grace. And so what, we, what Paul reveals through the flow of his letter is that spiritual growth is ignited by worship, not discipline. North American way of thinking? Hey, do you want to ignite your spiritual growth? Discipline. Not the flow of this letter, not the flow of any of his letters. Spiritual growth is ignited by worship. And that ignites discipline. But we never start with the, with the discipline. Discipline is good because it serves spiritual growth. I'm not minimizing discipline. I'm putting it in its right place. Discipline is good because it serves spiritual growth. But marveling at the grace of Christ is the power that ignites spiritual growth. Growth. See, once we are freed from the curse of the law, we can enjoy the blessings of God's law. But you have to be free from the curse of it first. And the curse of it is keep it. And unless you inflate your obedience and minimize God's law, you're not keeping it. Nobody in here has kept it. I'm not keeping it. You're not going to keep it tomorrow. I'm not going to keep it tomorrow. Because the standard is the perfect righteousness of Christ. However, the beauty of the gospel is it doesn't leave us in our sin, and it doesn't leave us incapable of living to the glory of the one who saved us. Otherwise, that's no gospel at all. Hey, just wallow around in your sin all the time. Be stuck in the same vomit. You know, wish it was better, but it won't be. That's not the gospel either. So Paul has to dial them back into the beauty of this, and he gives us a proper lens for our faith. And here's what, it, what it, it reveals, is that God's law is the law of Christ, which is to love God and love our, love our neighbors perfectly, which, of course, we're not doing. But the gospel liberates us from self-love, and it liberates us so that we can live to love God and live to love our neighbors and love those around us and live lives of generosity and sacrifice. That's what it liberates us to do. So obedience that is driven by the gospel is like a sailboat, in a sense. Because there's lots of things to do on a sailboat, but you're not propelling the boat. But obedience that's driven by the law is like a rowboat. Riding on you, bro. Riding on you. Right? There's lots to do, but it's not enjoyable. It's exhausting. It's, you're propelling yourself and your work, you, you know, you think your work is, is getting you there. And so Ephesians chapter 1 reveals there's nothing that we can earn by our work that hasn't already been given by grace. And so the keeping God's law is loving God more than anything and loving our neighbors more than ourselves. And it's only the power of his grace that enables us to want to live that way. I'll say it like this. Our obedience is imperfect because of our sin. But our obedience will increase because of his grace. 
My obedience will always be imperfect because I am a sinner in and of myself. Not past tense, not when, well, when, Paul, when I was young, I was a sinner, you know, but then I, you know, I became really mature and I, and I went to seminary and it beat the sinner out of me and now I'm a saint and now I'm only righteous in Christ. That's, Paul never said that, I'm not saying that. But what's also true is that I'm united to Christ and he is my righteousness and he is doing a work in me so that even though my obedience will always be imperfect, it will always be increasing. Imperfect because I'm a sinner, but increasing because he is my righteousness. That's the beauty of the flow of this letter and Paul's gospel logic of, of what Paul reveals in this text. And it's, and it's beautiful and it's amazing. Uh, Thomas Chalmers says it this way. He's a theologian and beautiful way of saying it. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Think about it this way. Uh, I asked Nigel for permission to say this, so I'm not embarrassing my son. But I've asked Nigel to put his shoes away a thousand times. A thousand times. I'm probably going to ask him to put them away a thousand more times. And the law of my command is not changing that boy's heart. But you know what? One day, and I told him this, I said, one day, you're going to meet a girl. And and, and that girl is going to, um, maybe one day, when, uh, you know, you're going to get married to that girl. And, and you're going to leave your shoes out in the hallway like you leave them out for your dad. But because you love your wife like crazy in a totally different way than you can ever love your dad, um, you're going to love your wife, you're going to be committed to your wife in marriage, and your wife's going to be like, you know, I don't like it when you leave your shoes out because I really like when I don't trip over things coming into the house. And you're going to put your shoes away. Because... The power of that new affection is going to expel some old behavior. And the love and the grace that comes with that new affection expels the behavior that a thousand commands of the law will never expel. And he kind of looked at me like, yeah, okay, we'll see. Yeah, you will see. <clears throat> It'll happen, son. It'll happen. I'm going to close with this. I'm going to close with this. It's that Spiritual growth, it is counterintuitive because you're starting with that beholding and you're not starting with behavior. And Paul gives us this beautiful wave of grace here in chapter 1 to set the stage um, for his letter. And, and it's the power of knowing that everything for you is assured that changes the day-to-day -day way we think and breathe and, and act and love and deal with tragedy and deal with sickness and deal with... Do with with the pain and the unrest of this world. Because we know that it's done for us. I'm going to give you a picture. It's like this. It's like in 1932, there was this the story of Little Orphan Annie. And Little Orphan Annie gets adopted by Daddy Warbucks. Flashback to Ephesians 1, predestined for adoption. Little Orphan Annie gets adopted by Daddy Warbucks. And she goes into this big, huge mansion. And she's all still dirty in her dirty little dress. And there's all the servants. And all the servants in the big mansion are so happy because Daddy Warbucks is just such a loving master. They all, loving be, they all loving, love to be there. And the, the joyous servant says to little orphan Annie, what would you like to do first? And little orphan Annie says, well, I think I should start with the floors. That's a picture of us as Christians not understanding adoption. You see, because she thinks she has to earn her keep. Church, our obedience has nothing to do with earning our keep. 
The rest of this letter, as I begin to blow it out and unfold the glory of what it means to live in, in, in joy to God and have us forsake our sin and adopt the love of our Savior and walk in obedience to God's word, it has nothing to do with validating anything. You're like little orphan Annie in your dirty little dress. And God adopted you by grace alone. And now he's saying to you, because there's nothing left for you to do, what do you want to do first? And the response of the one that's been adopted by grace alone is, well, gosh, I want to enjoy and live to the glory of the one who brought me to this beautiful house. That's the picture of his grace. We live in a world that is full of unrest and uncertainty, but in Christ we have both rest and certainty. We live in a world that is full of trials and pain and suffering, but because of Christ we have grace and peace because he is drawing us to himself in our suffering. We live in a world of sickness and disease and death, but united to Christ, death is not the end. And this life is not all that there is. Because the Father initiated your redemption by grace. The Son validated and made final your adoption by grace. And the Spirit has made permanent your inheritance by grace. And church, you are free to live to the glory of the one who saved you. Let's pray.